All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this episode of the Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. Emergency podcast time because of Roy Hibbert signing. <laughs> yes. Sixers added uh, Roy Hibbert as a player development coach about, what, maybe two hours after you wrote in your mailbag that you weren't sure if they were going to replace that spot. They uh, they ended up replacing that spot. So so good inside info, uh, good scoop from you. <laughs> I think I did that earlier season where I'm like, yeah, I don't know if they're going to fill up that 15th roster spot. Uh, and then a, a, maybe a day or two, I might have gotten a day or two out of that comment. They uh, they added what Furcon with the 15th spot, so uh, it happens. We yeah. should try and uh, reverse jinx. Like I don't know if they're going to sign Kawhi Leonard in a in a just <laughs> yeah. a ridiculous trade or something like that. But uh, well, I'm, we'll I'm pretty sure at one point we did say we're we're not sure if they're going to sign Kawhi Leonard. So I think I think we won that one. Um, not a whole lot of new information here to go on. So we'll probably tread over some familiar territory. Certainly things that we've talked about on other. Mediums, more specifically, theathletic.com slash Sixers. Uh, we have been writing a little bit about Al Horford and his addition to the Sixers. Uh, he was the, certainly the biggest signing, the biggest surprise for sure. Um, you know, Josh Richardson giving his age might end up being the, the bigger long-term signing, even though, or acquisition, even though he's only under contract for two more seasons. But, you know, uh, Horford is, I would say, the better player right now. Certainly the more surprising player right now. And maybe the more question, questionable fit, um, and the more, you know, the one I think a lot of people had more questions of coming in just because of his age, just because I think a lot of people, um, Brad Stevens at times, because last year he played the majority of minutes at center, view him more as a modern day center, not somebody to play next to Joel Embiid. So we sort of took some of this off season to dive into that fit and how he will fit as a power forward and alongside Embiid, in addition to what he will bring as a backup center. So I think he is probably a a good topic to go over this week when, like we said, there's just not a whole lot of whole lot of new information. Yeah, it was a good good couple pieces. I had one on kind of his fittest power forward with next to Embiid. You had one on uh on the Giannis matchup, which uh you can go check out at the uh, athletic.com. Uh, I'm sure there's a a deal. If not, tweet us. We will we will get you one. We'll track one down. Yes. So you know, and it's funny. I was thinking when you had the Giannis piece up last year, there were four teams or three other teams besides the Sixers where we knew this could be kind of a high stakes playoff matchup. I look, the Bucks came out of nowhere last year, so I am fully prepared for for anything. You know, a team kind of rising up that we don't see, but it kind of feels like there's just one team right now. Yeah. And I mean, I think it becomes more interesting when some of these injured players come back. Um, you know, when Oladipo comes back, which, you know, should happen in the middle of the season, um, with the Pacers, they're going to be a real strong team. Are they going to be a, a Bucks level threat? Probably not, but they'll be really good. And then you have the Nets. And when Kevin Durant comes back, you know him and Kyrie Irving and 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 that nucleus they've built there. They'll be a a threat, a very different team than the Sixers, uh, which will be fun to watch play out. A team very very guard heavy, uh, whereas the Sixers are, of course, huge. Um, so that will be a fun matchup. But him, you know, who knows whether or not he will be back at all by the end of the season? Uh, who knows whether or not, even if he is ready to come back, whether that will make sense to come back with maybe like a month or two left in the season? And who knows whether either of those players will be the 
Kevin Durant and Victor Oladipo that we remember. So certainly when you're looking at it from the offseason perspective and previewing the season, the Bucks are the one threat that everybody is is focused on, and rightfully so. Yep. And so I guess let's get into that that piece first because uh I do think a lot of the coverage when the Sixers shockingly acquired Horford was that they had another guy to guard Giannis. And it's right, Horford did guard him and, you know, it seemed like Giannis kind of figured something out in, you know, kind of the middle of that series where he kind of got going. But what, what did you find, I guess, in general from, from looking at his past guarding Giannis? Yeah, I think, I think what I found was that Giannis is really, really good. And there, po- podcast over. High I level analysis. Him. That's yep. what we're here for. Um, Scoops and high-level analysis. Yes. <laughs> what they will do with their player development coaches and uh, and that Giannis is good. You would not get that anywhere else. Um, you know, I think I think going back and rewatching some of those games and, and some of those possessions, you know, first I guess the numbers, uh, which I was in the middle of bringing up, and I have 18 million tabs open, so give me one second. Um, Are you a big tabs guy? Uh, I've, I, I try not to be, but I, I end up being. Um, it's sort of against what I want to do, but yes. Our colleague at the Athletic, Bo Wolf, he uh, he has shown me his tabs before. I've gotten anxiety looking. Oh at no, them. no, no! I'm not like that at all. It's it, it's more like an accidental. Oh shoot! I have thirty tabs open. It's not a. Oh, it's not a. a Thirty's a, nothing a for him. <laughs> he, sh- he showed me. I think it was eighty at one point. That's that's. I'm, I'm surprised his computer runs. Uh, with how bloated browser software is nowadays, I'm I'm surprised that. Anyway, this none of this none none of this matters. Really, none of this this podcast matters anyway. But certainly, none of that matters. So, in, in the uh, Horford defended Giannis 175 possessions over the course of those five games, which is a lot. It's it's he was by far the most of anyone on the Celtics. Um, in those possessions, Giannis averaged 44.6 points per 100 possessions and shot 56.5 percent from the field. Uh, so did he stop Giannis? No, not at all. Um, not even, not even close. Uh, I, I think some of that, you know, we talked a lot about Ben Simmons as, you know, Kawhi Leonard's dropping like 38 on the Sixers. We're saying, well, Ben's actually playing really good defense on him. It's just Kawhi Leonard is making really tough shots. I think there was a lot of that in that series. Like when I went back and I watched the, some, some of the possessions, you know, you see those numbers, 44.6 points per 100 possessions. And like I said, almost 57% shooting. And you think, wow, he must be getting roasted. I think by and large, I think Horford played him really well. Um, you know, Giannis took some three-point shots. Those actually went in. He shot six for 13. When defended by Horford, you don't expect that to always, always happen. But I think when Horford had a chance to get set in the half court and play the angles, I think he played him really well. And he blocked him a number of times. He was really impressive around the rim in terms of his shot blocking and altering a shot. When Giannis didn't get all the way to the rim, I think he struggled to finish over Horford. And I think that's something we didn't see when Ben Simmons defended him. Um, and, you know, Horford and, and Ben Simmons have pretty similar body types uh, in, in, in terms of at least size. I think Horford probably has him on the, on the, the standing reach and whatnot. Um, but you just see how much better of a rim protector Horford is in that series. But I think really came down to, and I think this, a lot of times this happens with the Sixers too. You know, the Sixers came out, had Joel Embiid on in the last two games. A lot of that is to not just put your best defender on Giannis, but also to keep him closer to the rim, 
not having to have to chase out Brooke Lopez, who really hurt the Sixers in their first matchup, and to keep your your, your defenders locked on, on Milwaukee shooters. And I think what I really found is that that's what that allowed the Celtics to do. That's what sort of everyone in the playoffs, until Toronto tried to do, that's what Detroit tried to do in the first round of the series. They defended them largely with centers. That's what the, the Celtics did. And that's what Toronto started off doing before they adjusted and realized they had the best wing defender on the planet on their, on their side. And they put, you know, Kawhi on him and he, he, he really disrupted them. But I think a lot of the NBA now, until Giannis starts shooting, is sort of throwing these big, somewhat mobile rim protectors on Giannis and, and hoping that you can goad him into perimeter shots and hoping that you don't have to send too much help. And I think with, uh, with, with, I think what having Horford on him did, was allowed them not to send a lot of help, which if you have a 6'10 guy who can do that, who can credibly do that, you can sort of do that strategy. But the Sixers also have a 7'2 guy who can do that. They do. They do. And I think the question becomes, who do you want to put on to uh, to Giannis? I think in your column, you the stats kind of bore out something that the eye test showed you. Even though Giannis in those last two regular season games against the Sixers had Pretty big scoring nights. Actually, the game in Milwaukee, he didn't go crazy, right? The no, he did. He, I think he dropped. I think he might have dropped fifty. Oh, was that the fifty pointer? Okay, yeah. yeah. But now that that was a weird one. So he dropped. I think. I think Embiid Boban defended was him in for that like, game, wasn't he? Well, he was defended by a lot of people. Embiid was a primary defender, and I think he defended him for like forty five possessions. And I think I think Giannis scored like twenty six points on like seven for sixteen shooting or something like that. So he had he had success, but like. In maybe 10 possessions that anyone else defended him, he dropped like another 24 points or something absurd like that. Like he just absolutely torched him whenever the Sixers tried to put anyone other than Joel Embiid on him. Um, so he had a huge night. A lot of that came with, and he had success against Embiid, but a lot of that came because they, it was sort of like the playoffs where if you sat Embiid for even a minute, you didn't have a chance. Well, if you put anyone else on Giannis in this game, you didn't have a chance. That's right. That was the game he, uh, he, he called Ben Simmons a baby, Simmons. yeah, yes. and he dunked really hard on him. And then Simmons had a nice dunk at the end, but when you looked at their their lines at the end of the game, I think uh, even though the Sixers won the war, Giannis won that battle for yes. sure. The uh, yeah, it, but but the numbers you showed, and it, I think it was true with both Horford and Embiid, was that the team defense was better when they were right. guarding Giannis. Yep, and a lot and of that you, it's, you don't it's, know. It's kind of. Well, yeah, and you, you, you'll talk about how, you know, some of it might have been kind of lucky three opponent three point shooting, and you don't know how much of it is them actually stopping stopping Giannis. But I, I do think there is something right now to uh, to kind of letting Giannis try and get his, but on your terms, you know, like it. Th- this guy is so dominant around the rim, you almost have to look at him like. He's almost like the modern day Shaq in a way where, you know, you saw him against Simmons. I, I thought it was crazy the way he would push Ben Simmons around. Ben Simmons is a big guy and, and he really just would just had his way kind of, kind of pushing him around around the basket. Well, okay. He, you can't do that against Embiid and Horford as easily. So yeah, you go to him into shooting threes and I think that's the strategy. I, I did read that though and think. Oh man, what if Giannis starts making threes though? <laughs> yeah. Well, then the whole league's just fucked. Like you have, there's, there's no, there's no defense against that outside of, of maybe the Clippers and Kawhi Leonard. That's all you have. Um, Ben Simmons is going to have to, 
you know, he, he's going to have to turn into a Kawhi Leonard level defender for the Sixers to have any real chance of slowing him down. Um, he is, he, he would be borderline unstoppable. But yeah, you're right. Like when the Sixers threw Simmons on him, the, the strength and length difference was really pronounced. Uh, I mean, he could, he just bullied his way into the paint and he just rose up and dunked on him. And that's when you really start getting into dangerous territory. Like when you don't feel like your defender can body him up one on one and keep him away from the rim, you start sending help. And he's a good enough passer and has the, the vision line to make those, those passes and generate a lot of easy shots for his teammates. And with Horford, you could, you could credibly ask him to defend him one on one without thinking you're going to get absolutely destroyed. And would Boston still send help? Yes, but it's more like strategic. They think that he is deep enough that they can capitalize on that and force a turnover or force a bad shot. Whereas it's not like scramble to try to save a possession. And I think that's, you know, I think, I think that will be key for the Sixers. It really will. Um, having two guys and look, you might end up still wanting your seven two guy on him because he can just affect more shots at the rim. He's a, he's a defensive player of the year caliber player. Uh, but having another option for when Embiid sits on the bench, having other options so that Embiid can do that for 30 possessions a game instead of 50 and keep him fresh and keep him out of foul trouble, which is something Brown acknowledged out in Milwaukee when he sort of went this route. He's like, I'm, I'm honestly more worried about foul trouble than I am about, about, you know, keeping him fresh and in shape and, 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 and where he still has a bounce in this step. And I think both of them are valid concerns, but I think having another, another capable defender, um, that you can, sort of stay in the same scheme on um, will help them should the two teams meet. And it's weird to be talking about one matchup, but like we said at the beginning, like this is a matchup that you can't, you can't avoid. And I certainly don't want to say a six or signed Horford for this matchup, but you have to sort of look at it when you, you talk about any addition. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't lost on them that it could potentially happen. I mean, you're trying right. to improve your team specifically, but yeah, I think they, they were looking you it's know, not like a Marcus All level obvious look ahead, um, but it's it's a it's a factor for sure. It's not as low cost of a move as that either. Right. Too. right. Uh, yeah, it's uh it should be fun, and we'll get to see. I mean, the the schedule comes out on Monday, but we know these two teams will play on Christmas, and they will play four times this year since they only played three times the previous season. Um, right, because every year there's one of your two in conference divisions, one of the two other in-conference divisions, you only play three times, and they rotate that. So they will play that conference four times next year. I didn't know that little bit of schedule minutia, but I thought it was just randomly picked. But So that'll be good, four times, and, and one of them will be on Christmas in Philadelphia. We're working on Christmas, buddy. Oh, oh. Not too thrilled about that, Rich. I'm not too thrilled about that. Well, I, I like I like national TV games. Um, I don't I don't need this one on. On a holiday that I enjoy spending with my family, but it would we be will we will sacrifice. It would be nice if it's an earlier game. If I mean, if it could be the twelve o'clock, I don't think it's going to be because it's more of a high profile matchup. But see, I'd, I'd rather have late at night. Maybe, maybe we'll just we'll send Mike out. We'll send Mike to cover that game. Yeah, Mike. Mike, uh, we have we haven't talked this over with Mike yet, so you're all you're, finding it out along with Mike. But you're going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that'll be fun. The. Uh, I guess we can talk about my article a little bit too. Yeah, what what do you think about Horford at the four? Well, I, you know, just going into it when they acquired Horford, we all kind of viewed him through the lens of Embiid kryptonite, and thus a five, because when the uh, when the Celtics played the uh, the Sixers, he 
you know, they, they would play some minutes with Baines at the four, at, uh, at the five. But for the most part, when, when things got, you know, when things got close at the end of games, it was Horford doing that pick and pop and, and Bede kind of running wildly at him and Horford bodying him up on the other end. So, you know, I, I kind of like look back at, at his, uh, his numbers at the four over the past couple of years. And I got to say, I was a little bit surprised, A, at how good he was at the four, how good the Celtics kind of functioned at the four, and B, how much he played there. I think the, uh, the two seasons before, this season he did not play that much at the four, but Baines was hurt a lot of the year as well. Uh, I think he played the numbers, let's see. He played in, uh, in two years ago he played 43% of his minutes at the four. And three years ago, he played 68% of his minutes at the four. And the Celtics were really good, basically, re- regardless of, of, you know, who was kind of playing next to him there. And I think what was interesting was kind of how they were good. They became, basically across the board, just an amazing defense. There, I think there was one year in there where they weren't an elite defense. But, you know, and you kind of look at how they were an elite defense and – a team shot a terrible percentage. They, uh, they didn't get to the line at all. And they, uh, they rebounded really well as well. The, I think the one thing they didn't do was that they didn't, uh, turn people over. But, but basically my whole thought from looking at this was, wow, I mean, he did this stuff with Aaron Baines and Kelly Olinick. Like, what the hell could it look like with Joel Embiid then? You know, I, I think Are you trying was, to convince me that Joel Embiid's a better defender than Aaron Baines? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. I was just making sure I, I, I understood you. Yeah. So, yeah, I I just was kind of amazed at the numbers. And then the offense was a little bit worse, was which is what you would expect. You know, it, I, I kind of brought up the scenario of him picking and popping. But, you know, when there's not a uh, another player at, uh, you know, clogging the lane, it seems like the Celtics had a better chance to score. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was very encouraged by his minutes at the four. Now, I mean, it'll be different with Embiid because Baines, he used to shoot those ridiculous three pointers that would always go in against the Sixers. He was, he was kind of used. Wrong fucking foot forward. Oh, drove me freaking insane. I always wanted the sports science guy to do a segment on those Baines shots because I really do think they were kind of breaking the laws of physics but he doesn't know what foot to put forward and he shoots like 60% in a series against the Sixers it was maddening I thought that was crazy because by game three I was viewing him like JJ Redick like (laughs) like I was like oh my god they're giving up an open shot to him this ball's going (laughs) in I know it might uh might hit the the scoreboard first but it's going to go in um but now Horford's going to play in that Baines role where, you know, B- Baines, of course, uh, would never post up at all. And you're going to a guy in Embiid who gets, I think he's second behind Lamarcus Aldridge in the league in terms of post-ups. And so, very different post-ups there. Yep. Aldridge will be like, turn around fadeaways and Joel's trying to lower his shoulder and bulldoze you. He's trying to bully his way in. And I mean, like, look, I think there's something to be said, like, if Al Horford is your, uh, is kind of the, your offensive hub, operating at the elbows, like the Celtics offense hasn't been that good recently. So I, I think there's something to that. But, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of encouraged, uh, looking at it because it, that's important. Like, you know, we talk all the time about how Horford will be able to back up Embiid and that his fit with Simmons is nice. But I, I mean, I, I think just, just looking at these numbers, it kind of reinforced the point that like 
man, this defense could be really freaking good. Yeah, and I think I think those numbers that you post in your article, I think that does reinforce that. You know, I think coming in, I thought offensively, I think Al probably adds more value as a center. I think that's where his shooting has a little bit more of an impact. I think that's where his passing really gets unlocked. And I think over the last few years, we've really seen that his passing is sort of like, you know, one of his real elite and unique skills. So I think that's going to be really, you know, people ask, how are you going to generate offense, half-court offense? I think running cutters off of Al when he's at the five is, is going to be one of the ways that you make up for the loss of Embiid. Uh, and hopefully they can make up the loss of Embiid a little better than they did last year in the playoffs, which which we know will be true because they're not running out Greg frickin' Monroe this year. But I do think I do think he's he's best offensively at the five uh, by a pretty considerable margin. Um, you know, I think in terms of as a shooter, I don't think he's necessarily a plus shooter as a power forward. Percentage-wise, he might be. You know, I think two years ago, he, he was close to 40% if he didn't hit it. Volume's um, important there, though. But volume's very important, especially as the NBA trends toward having basically three wings at the shooting guard, small forward, and power forward. A lot of those guys will get those shots up. You know, there are teams where Tobias Harris would be your power forward, and he'll he'll shoot, you know, seven threes a game. Horford's not going to do that, and and that does impact... How teams defend you, that does impact your spacing. So I think he's going to make his shots, but they're slow releases and there's going to be a, a low volume of those attempts. But defensively is where you hope to make that up. And I do think this is a team, and and it sort of dovetails into what we talked about to open up this podcast. The fact that you can put Al Horford on a guy like Joel Embiid and then also put Al Horford on Giannis. And I'll be completely honest, like, you know, yeah, Horford gave up space to Giannis because Giannis doesn't shoot. That's his biggest weakness. But he didn't give up as much space as Embiid. Like, he can move his feet on the perimeter. Now, how long will that be true? You know, he's coming in the season at 33. Like, will will 35-year-old Al Horford move his feet like 32-year-old one did? Probably not. But right now, he can move his feet um, pretty well. Uh, where you're not losing too much in terms of foot speed by having what's basically a modern-day center playing your power forward. So I think I think defensively, they're going to be elite with that starting lineup. I mean, that really is, if, if we got on Tobias quite a bit for his defense at times, and look, he's not, I wouldn't even call him an average defender. I think he's a below average defender, but he's not, he's not awful and he's not without merit and he doesn't have some aspects that he brings. Um, and you can put him on a, on someone like Marcus Sol. He has a little more versatility big, than what yeah. you would typically say of a, a quote unquote bad defender. I don't think he's a bad defender. I think he's a below average defender. And he has more versatility than a typical below average defender because he's so big and strong. So I think if he's your weakest defender and he's who you're trying to quote unquote hide, they could, I mean, they could be, we like to say stuff like top five because we like to be conservative. They could be the, the best defense in the league, especially if players like Zaire and Matisse sort of develop quicker than expected because we, we're pretty confident they can be plus defenders right now at an NBA level, if their offense comes around and they work their way into that rotation, now you don't really have too many weaknesses off your bench defensively either. Yeah. Part of me wonders if, if they're pushing the envelope a little bit too much, though. Like, how good can an elite defense be? You know, like, teams are going to get to a certain number regardless. And I almost feel like these guys are trying to push it to the point where it's like, you know how, uh, how Brett Brown used to be like, uh, all I think about is crunch time offense, 92, 92, uh, you know, three yeah, minutes left. They didn't spend the summer thinking of that. You know. And, uh, 
No, no, but my point is though, like at some point last year, he was like, "Well, I, I should probably move that number up a little bit. Like scores are, are higher than yes. than they've been." I think with this team, I'm not sure. I think I think it's like 92, 92 might be high. You know, it might seem about right. And yeah, kind of how they uh, how they go about scoring is going to be interesting. The uh, you, you know it was a little bit concerning his rebound. The Celtics rebounding numbers at center at the five, yeah, were were worse. And you know maybe that'll be okay with the Sixers because you know he'll be playing with Ben Simmons a lot. He'll. Uh, They'll always have some sort of size on the court, but that's that's something to look for. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't seem like it'll be a problem with Embiid. Yeah, and I, I think at the four, his uh, I think the way you you said it, the word is like like angles. Like he's just so smart with how he how he helps, how he kind of sees things happen. It's uh, it, it should be fun. But uh, yeah, I, I think the big thing offensively though is he's gonna have to shoot more threes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and going back to angles and, and smart, like rewatching a lot of that Celtics series, when he was off the ball, when, when Giannis didn't have the ball in his hands, he was, he was a, a pretty elite team defender in, in terms of helping even just guys coming off of screens and curls and, and, and just, you know, getting in their way and slowing them down and helping ball handlers and recovering. Um, that helps when you have someone like Giannis who you know isn't going to shoot. He's not a spot up threat. Um, so you can be a little more aggressive in doing so, but he was the right person to, to be aggressive like that, um, he's he's going to help their team defense a ton. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, crunch time offense is always going to be the 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 one that you worry about. Um, they don't have general enough. offense is going to be interesting too. Yes. Um, you know, I think they have a lot of capable players and a lot of capable shooters. Uh, I I don't particularly. We don't need to get into this again because there's. I feel like JJ Redick has become such a hot button topic like he's very he's almost become divisive and i don't really know why like i thought his strengths and weaknesses were were pretty obvious and pretty i thought uh, i didn't expect there to be that much debate about him but the lack of i mean i I wrote about this i guess it was about a week ago um the lack of even just shooting on the move uh shooting coming off of a screen shooting off of one or two dribbles the Sixers have almost none of that like even 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 um the guys who can create off the dribble like Richardson and Tobias, they're much more like pull-up mid-range type guys right now and catch and shoot on the, the, the perimeter. And they just don't have a lot of, you know, I would, I would, they just don't have a lot of shot creation. And that's no. a, that's a definite concern. I think they're going to try and get Richardson on the move. More. I think you'll see him in a lot of DHOs. Yeah. I think, I think DHOs. probably more than he's, he's done in his career. I think that's one way they're going to try. You know, he's, he's certainly not JJ, as you said, but he does have his own strengths, you know, in terms of creating off the move. I think he scored pretty well in synergy dribble handoffs, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a, a whole ton, but I, no, I do but think, I, I think, I think stylistically he'll probably be a little more like Jimmy Butler off of a DHO where he'll use that edge to attack and at least try to get into the paint a little bit. Whereas JJ, obviously, even, you know, JJ led the team. I think he had about 50% of the team's three-point attempts off the dribble, and those were all just one dribble off a DHO, you know, into his comfort zone. Um, whereas I think I think Richardson will probably try to drive a little bit more off of those sets. Can I say Jimmy Butler drove me insane stylistically? Oh, yeah, of course. He and was I, a- I mean, that was something, if you go back and listen to our podcast in October when he was very, you know, publicly and almost infamously on the trade market. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we I think we brought that up at the time, too. 
he just was uh, look sometimes the pick and rolls would work and he he had the skill set he just took forever yeah. to to do stuff and it kind of kind of bit them on those last couple of possessions oh yeah if you go back and watch those 24 second violations a lot of that was jimmy butler indecisiveness yeah, yeah. uh but let's not I don't want to. But I mean, look, his his style also had some benefits too. Like he almost never turned the ball over. He got to the free throw line. Um, so there were there were benefits too. And and both of those are sort of things I'm a little bit concerned about with this current team. Random question, because I got this for the mailbag the other day. If Embiid doesn't, if let's say he's just sitting out an early season game, who is starting? Hmm. Probably, I would say Mike Scott in a small lineup. Okay. But I could see them going a wing. I could see them going a wing. Yeah, I think I think the general point when I thought about that was yeah, well, it could be it could be anybody. Yeah. I mean, if they wanted to put Kylo Quinn in there, I, I guess they could do that if they wanted. You know, if no, that's was, actually he might. I was thinking about that recently too. Like we talk a lot about Al Horford as a backup center, and you know, there's been a lot of reporting that Al's maybe not. He, he doesn't. He, he prefers to play power forward, and maybe they play Kylo Quinn a lot more at backup center than we expect. Like we we talk all the time, and we just talked about his shooting and passing at the center spot. I could see in the regular season them playing Kylo Quinn a lot more than we're anticipating, and sort of not saving Al for a as backup center for the playoffs, but sort of you know when the rotations shrink, then we see Al as pretty much the primary and only backup center. But I, I could see Kylo Quinn getting a lot of the. A lot of the backup center minutes sort of to keep Al fresh um, at 33, someone who doesn't necessarily want to play a lot of uh, primarily center at least. Um, I, I, I could see it happening, yeah. Mike Scott, just crashing weddings, going to arena football games, man of the people. Well, you've got Mike Scott crashing weddings and you've got Kylo Quinn crashing bar mitzvahs. So. We have a team of characters, that is for sure. Yep. All right, let's take a break from the podcast talk about this week's sponsor, BetOnline.ag. While baseball season is in full swing, placing a wager on baseball has never been easier with all the best odds at BetOnline.ag. This week, I'm watching, well, let's be honest, I'm watching whichever team has a good fortune to go up against the Phillies pitching staff. But wait, can you believe the NFL preseason is underway? To celebrate another season kickoff, BetOnline.ag and CLNS Media are giving you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Head on over to betonline.ag or use your mobile device to join today and use promo code CLNS50 to receive your welcome bonus. Don't sit on the sidelines this football season. Get into all the action with betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Please see betonline.ag's general rules for additional terms and conditions. A minimum deposit of $55 is required to qualify for the bonus. All right, now back to the show. I don't know what else we have, really. Did you... uh? What did you think of the New Jerseys? Eh. Of all of the the sort of retro jerseys to tap into, I think these might be just about my least favorite. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I don't care too much. Can I, I don't care too honest? much either. I don't care too much. And and the one thing is maybe uh, that's because I'm out of the jersey market now. But I just I just don't get like I don't have a lot of strong takes about jerseys. Well, the good news is if you ever get back into the Jersey market, they are going to make new ones every year. So yes. it's clear. The uh, uh the one thing I, I saw that I uh, I forgot to text you about was uh they are changing the Suxers ones. <laughs> good. That's gonna say those are gonna say Phila now, I believe, on, okay. on the Jersey. I I do like the Phila. I that 
maybe it's just because that's an era of this franchise's history that I think needs to needs to be remembered and needs to be celebrated. Um, whereas the the seventy sixers jersey era is not. Uh, was that the nine and seventy three or yeah nine and seventy three team? Did they wear something similar to this? Incarnation. It's around those years. I think it was a year or two before, maybe. Okay. But, okay. Yeah. But I do like I do like Phila, and I I like keeping those in the uh, in the rotation. Hmm. Backup point guard. Uh, something we didn't really talk about uh, too much. So they obviously signed Howell Nato earlier, and then they brought in Trey Burke, who seems like he's all in on this team, uh, which is which is fun to see. Thoughts on who should be a backup point guard on Trey Burke's fit? And uh, what you'd like to see out of that position? So I think the first thing is that Howell Neto, I cannot wait to hear Philadelphia Talk Radio uh, try and pronounce that. Uh, I don't I don't think that'll go all that well. I, but, I mean, I uh, think it'll be Raul Neto. Yeah, I think so. But with probably – Which, more. I mean, I look, I, I mispronounced Charge's name for like a year and a half while we were talking about him while he was – a right held player and a draft prospect, so I I can't I can't claim perfection on this one. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think I think Trey Burke is kind of the skill set that a lot of people were clamoring for. Kind of the the water bug guard who can kind of get his own shot and and make plays in the pick and roll. Uh, Trey Burke is a terrible defensive player. Yes. And I think that's kind of where I would start. And and his uh. You know, I, I think his effectiveness is kind of dependent on other players being able to make up for his shortcomings there. And then, look, the Sixers have a roster that uh, that might be able to do that. He's he's a little more. I, I think he probably has a higher ceiling, maybe than than Howell Neto, uh, who's kind of a steadier player. Um, you know, when the Sixers kind of, you know, they chose Neto and and TJ, TJ McConnell. Went on to Indiana. I think my thought was, okay, this is a guy who, you know, maybe he might not be able to create as much as TJ can, but he is a more willing shooter, which is more important when you you play some minutes next to Ben Simmons. Maybe, although this is a backup point guard. I, I the one thing I am curious about is, is there any chance Josh Richardson ends up getting some of those minutes? Oh sure, and again, this is one where maybe in a regular season. And you're just trying to get like a, a, a rotation down and, and keep guys fresh and rested. Maybe this doesn't happen as much in a regular season, but I could certainly see once the rotation shrink in the playoffs, I could see them, I could see them letting him initiate, uh, at least at times. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's within his skill set. It seems like he was a little bit out of his depth as a first option. Oh, yes. In Miami, but. If you're only going to have him do it for a couple minutes, maybe against, you know, some of these, maybe it's an Embiid-led unit where you're playing against some second-unit players. It seems like he might be able to do that. And yep. you know, look, the Sixers are. Did they set the over/under? Is it fifty-four and a half? Is that what I, I think I saw? I saw, I saw a fifty-five and a half somewhere. Okay, but so, right around there. We'll we'll say fifty-five and split. So people bit. think they're going to be good, and yep. and we do too. Uh, hopefully, they are that good, and they have a chance to experiment throughout the regular season and kind of see, you know, mix and match which which players will work. Uh you know, it'll it'll be interesting. I I don't really have high hopes for uh for Trey Burke Trey Burke, I, I kinda like his skill set more than I like the player almost. It it, it yeah. does seem like it's a decent fit on the Sixers. 
But, you know, there's a reason why he was almost out of the NBA. Um, so yeah, it'll, I haven't really thought too much about it because you're basically talking about what the, the 12th and 13th guys on the roster or. Yeah. But one of those two, whoever wins that quote unquote battle, and I think, I think Neto is probably the favorite. They signed um, it first. So. They, they did. You would, you would assume that that would have some bearing on, on how they view the two players. Yes. Um, but one of those two will get minutes, at least in the regular season. And even though, you know, Simmons is going to play a lot, both of those players can, to some degree, play off of him too. So you might even see them alongside of Simmons at times too. Um, especially, you know, as guys rest and get injured and whatnot and the lineups get a little funky. You know, Burke was, he was one of those players, like you said, terrible defensive player, probably always going to be a terrible defensive player. He just doesn't have the physical tools to be a plus on that end. Um, but when he came in the league, and look, he was a top 10 draft pick. And I always, he's always, he was, so whenever I talk about the draft and about being right, I always say that in this business, being right is a matter of perspective. And the example I always use is, you know, I had Giannis ranked 10th in that draft on my draft board. And that sounds great. You know, he ended up going 14th. I, I had him higher than NBA general managers did. And this is the guy who became a future MVP and being a higher on an MVP is something than, than NBA general manager is something you should be. I think most people would take that as a win. But then I always go back and I look and I'm like, how in the fucking hell did I have Trey Burke rated ahead of Giannis coming into the draft? <laughs> uh, and again, NBA general managers did too, but being right is a matter of perspective. And Trey Burke was always sort of the one that I used to showcase that matter of perspective. That it's real easy, you know, depending on what you focus on, you can either feel great about yourself or terrible about yourself. And one decision can lead to either, either of the two feelings. So the Sixers now have him. And like I said, he was a top 10 pick in his draft. And he came in the NBA and he received minutes he didn't earn. You know, he was a starter for Utah the first two years and he was dreadful, like legitimately one of the worst players in the NBA getting minutes. And he has improved by leaps and bounds since then. And he's become a better and more willing three-point shooter. He has become a – he has he has learned how to navigate NBA size to finish in the paint a lot better. Like he had no – like he was just getting swallowed up in the paint when he first came in the league. And he sort of just kept going in, kept going in, kept bouncing off of big men, kept getting his, his shots stuffed. And he's gotten much better at that. And his pull-up game, streaky, but he has that skill set. Like you said, it's sort of something where you like the skill set more than the actual production. But he's he's gotten a little better at all of these little things to now where he was legitimately one of the worst offensive players in a game that was using up possessions. Now he can he can he can sort of you know he can get hot and he can get on a roll and he can he can lift you at time. Am I confident he's going to be a net positive more often than not? No. Um, he still has those limitations. He's, his game is still very much built off of a pull-up jumper that, you know, looks sexy when it goes in, but when it's not, it can really derail your offense. Uh, and he's still a huge net negative on defense. So am I going to tell you that you know, he's going to be a six-man microwave score? No, because I don't think he's going to get the minutes to really be that um, because I think, think his deficiencies are too pronounced for that to happen. But I think he could get hot from now now and then and uh, and give you a spark and certainly give you a skill set that they don't have. You know, we talk so much about 
well, they don't have anyone who can create a shot. Well, he can create a shot. It's not always a great shot, but he has that skill set in him. And he's gotten a little better at recognizing what's a good shot, or at least what's not a terrible shot, than he was earlier in his career. So it will be nice to have that guy that you can just give the ball to, run him off of a, a, a screen, have him attack downhill, and, and the defense will have to worry about. They ha- at least have that option on their roster now. That being said, like you said, I think Neto is a um, more consistent player. I, I think he's the better defender by a considerable margin. And I expect them to, I, I expect him to win the backup point guard spot coming out. Yeah, I mean, for a fan base who, uh, who enjoyed TJ McConnell's once in a while explosions, and when I say explosion, I mean like 12, 12 points. points. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> triple double though. Uh, you know, I think Burke is certainly capable of something better than that from a scoring perspective. His, uh, his season two years ago for a Garbanzo Beans Knicks team was pretty good. No, he, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, 56% true shooting, the, the thing that I, it's kind of stands out to me, 36% assist percentage to 9% turnover percentage. Yes. That's very good. Uh, so yeah, he, you know, I, I think for him, this is a good situation because he'll have a chance to play for a team that needs what he is good at and, uh, can cover up his obvious weaknesses. So yeah. Yeah. And going back to that Knicks season, and that, that was really when his career turned around. He's got he an, a, he's got a pretty good story in terms of like, he was, you know, he, after those first couple of years, he was kind of on the mat, you know, he, yeah. had, he had really kind of needed to turn it around and it, it seemed like, uh, it seemed like he kind of, I think I read a story in the athletic. I think it was Mike Verkunov, the, the Knicks writer who, uh, who wrote a story about how he reconnected with his old trainer from high school and that, that guy seemed to get him back on track. Yeah, and just going back to those first two years, two-point field goal percentage, so inside the arc, 41% in his first season, 40% in his second season. For the Knicks, that was almost 56%. So you can really see, I mean, it's like I said, it's just a whole bunch of little things, navigating size, navigating the paint, realizing what's a good shot, what isn't, realizing his strengths and weaknesses as an NBA player. He's just, he's gotten better at that. And is he going to always, like, that might end up being a career year for Trey Burke. But I think he's always going to be somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Yeah. And as another bonus, we don't have to worry about dissecting his shooting videos in the summer. I think <laughs> I think he's going to ha- – look, I mean, we're the reverse jigs guys, but I think it's going to be smooth come October. You never fucking know, Rich. You just never know. All right, I am not going to get into another conversation about off-season shooting Instagram videos. So I think that is as good of a place as any to end it. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man. Did I attract clientele? My mic check is life or death. Breathing the sniper's breath. I exhale the yellow smoke. I Buddha through righteous steps. Deep.